Hi, I'm Ryan, the argumentative rules guy. I'm Ben, the lethargic player. I'm Helen, the tragic backstory storyteller. And I'm Jared, the mislabeled index game master. Together, we have a starting equipment podcast. Before we get started with this episode, I just want to throw out the too long didn't read. You need to communicate with each other, and we are absolutely going to sound like couples therapists by how often we repeat that during this episode. Today, we are talking about pain points, about moments where either role-playing systems or your group may fail, may find things that they struggle with. Um, The best way to overcome these is to have clear and open communication lines with your fellow players, which is why we're going to be saying that a lot. That's not to say that the creators of the system don't bear some responsibility for helping you do this well, because they do. But many sins can be covered up by communicating. And always remember, resentment is the true death of anything. Good lord. (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong, but wow, that went... All right, now we're going to start with I statements. (laughs) (laughs) Say I feel and not I know, okay? Let's... (laughs) So Helen, why don't you get us started? So the first place that a session might break down is when the spotlight is over one player. Everyone should get to do something during the game. And some storylines do center around a specific character, that's fine. But there should still be roles for other players and other characters in that session or in that arc. That's something that we talked about a little bit during the engagement episode previously. And again, for this case, it's not to say that it's only the storyteller's job to make sure that all characters have something to do. We covered that as well in setting expectations for your engagement, being clear if, say, you'd rather be in for the ride or drive the bus. But a good place to start is just as a player, being open to suggestions from other players and the GM. Be ready to yes and or no but, and look for places where you can fit in even when the spotlight isn't on you. Storytellers, sometimes this can be on you and sometimes this can be on the setting, but you're going to have to help compensate regardless. There are some settings where it is really clear that they want everybody to be hyper-focused on one skill set and it is hard for others to interact with the person doing the skill set. One of my favorite examples is Shadowrun and Decking. There is an entire portion of the game that only one player can do. And so when you are faced with this in a setting, you need to come up with ways to keep everybody else engaged. One which is to just bounce back and forth quickly between the Decker and the rest of the party. There are some other good ways to do it too. Ryan, I know you wanted to talk about one of them. So one solution I've seen is when you have a scene, especially a whole storyline, where only one of the characters can really participate, you can give the other players temporary NPCs so they can still interact with the story, even if not with their characters, and hopefully enrich the story for the primary player. In fact, Ars Magica has a whole subsystem designed around that idea that Everyone's going to go on their own adventures and everyone has NPCs that are in everyone else's entourage. Ooh, that's kind of neat. Related to the example of Shadowrun, any game where you are going to have 
multiple dedicated subsystems it will come up but in games for instance where you can cross over major character templates such as chronicles of darkness world of darkness having overlapping opportunities to play character types from different books it will come up it has come up for us in our hunter game when one character develops the ability to walk into dreams and do things in people's dreams and in previous systems of that game is changing the laws, that was not really an accessible thing if you weren't also a changeling. In the second edition of the game, the developers did a great job of changing up how a lot of those subsystems work. And the result for Walking in Dreams in particular was they turned it into something that actually is really easy to just make a dedicated game about the whole party gets together and goes into a dream together. And that has actually made it easier for our cross book, cross system party to use that otherwise subsystem specific mechanic. That's an example of a developer building around a problem that could isolate potentially individuals within the party. In first edition, Changeling, before they made the rules so that it was easy to bring along non-Changelings, I ran a game that was mixed party then too. And what I had happen every time the Changeling went into someone's dream when the rules didn't really support other people joining them is I made it so that it was still a group activity by, you know, our werewolf went into the spirit world to chase the spirit that had information that needed to be relayed to the Changeling. I had the mage create a link between the psyche of the two so that they could still communicate and turned it into like a whole ritual for every party member in the group so that they all had a task to do. That is an example of when the setting fails you, clever GMing can still fix this problem or mitigate this problem. And be aware when you are approaching a subsystem or a part of your game that is going to do this to you and try and figure out how you as the storyteller can mitigate. Hopefully you run into a lot more what Helen talked about where the game makers actually fix the problem and make it so that you can all adventure together without needing to do this. We've talked about using the smash cut and pausing with one set of players so you can go over to the other set of players in order to build narrative tension and keep the focus moving around on different groups. We've talked about, in terms of genre, this happens in heist and Ocean's Eleven style movies and shows all the time. You'll be focusing on one group and then somewhere else someone else has is doing some other part of the project and then you will cut back up to somebody else who has the gate key and they're going to be able to open the gates so the getaway driver can get through everything like that it's the same principle if you have subsystems that are isolating different groups of people just keep moving and just keep tying things together narratively by hopping around Storytellers, this is where you come in. You set the pace. You can make parts of the story go faster or slower to keep everybody involved. There are healthy ways to do this and not healthy ways to do this. Telling that a player who's the center of attention that like this thing you're working on is going to take some time. We need to send away this piece of evidence to be analyzed. Okay, well, that's happening. I'm going to hop to somebody else. That is healthy. Telling the player they just can't do the thing that they want to do or making something, this is a 
worst case scenario, making a part of the story that you know they can't interact with to stop the story in its tracks is the worst thing you can be doing. The system that really stands out for me as the the complete antithesis to, yeah, you really just can't do that, is Mage. In Mage, everyone's playing a wizard. Everyone is meddling with the cosmic forces of the universe. I want to clarify real quickly, you're talking about Mage the Awakening or Mage the Ascension. Both of them. You know, telling a player who, who is there to play a wizard and to mess around with cosmic forces, like, yeah, you really just can't, you can't do that. Well, then why am I playing a wizard, right? That's the whole point of my character. I get to do this weird stuff. Just shutting them down that way isn't, it's just not part of the fun there. If somebody is doing something that seems completely counter to your story, don't tell them, no, you can't do that. Redirect them as you can to something that like, this is similar to what you wanted to do, but might be easier to accomplish. And a lot of the time your player will jump on that. Like, yes, let's do the thing. In our hunter game, we had a book with a demon inside of it. And one of our players wanted to try and get into the book to fight the demon there. And I'm like, well, we can do that, but it might be easier and more successful if you find a way to bring the demon out of the book so that everyone else can help you. And they were like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Let's bring the demon out of the book. And I do think it's important to note here too that that's going to depend on the type of game that you're running. Uh, Do people want a more hand-holdy like, hey, maybe don't go that direction this npc's pointing over there that that looks that area looks a little better do you want just like sure try it you want some new clean character sheets because you know depends on what mood you're in too and what type of group you have that's fair when we were going through blades in the dark one of the things that we talked about a lot was trying not to waste time at the table doing things that aren't fun if a diversion from say plot action is still fun for everyone at the table then go for it but if it becomes clear that maybe some wires got crossed maybe a player is interpreting what they are being told one way and so they see one path forward and that is not what the GM meant or vice versa, then you can end up in situations where maybe the GM doesn't realize what the player is trying to do and the player doesn't understand why they're running into a wall when they thought they were following sort of the direction of the clues. If you get the sense that that's happening, stop, communicate, ask the question, what is your goal? And if you can, don't necessarily- How are you feeling? Don't necessarily just fiat it all the time. But if the players come up with something clever, maybe you can let it work or let it help redirect them naturally in the course of the story toward whatever you were trying to get at in the first place if you had that kind of plot if you had the kind of plot that they're trying to discover your clues as opposed to say things are coming together in a little more player driven way your players coming up with unique things is a lot of why role playing is fun if your players come up with something that you didn't see coming find a way to make it work the only thing I would say storytellers particularly new storytellers this can be really intimidating if your players do this if they come up with something innovative and it requires you to change your whole theory do not be afraid to take a five minute break i have done this to my players so many times where i'm like yeah that's a really cool innovative thing i have no idea how to handle that i will be back 
after I read some rules and think about what you just did to me. One of the things I've seen in some of some of the online discourse between people in the uh, in the tabletop role playing space, there are some games where you as a storyteller, you're laying things out in advance. And there are other games where you as a storyteller have the opportunity to find out what's going on at the same time as your players do. And those are also fun and so, you know, just a little bit of give and take, letting yourself kind of be surprised by your players and maybe change things accordingly can also help you get around some of those blocks. Don't be frustrated if players aren't going exactly the way that you want them to go. Like everyone's been saying, one thing that GMs might be tempted to do would be to have NPCs take a lead role to, to do the player's job. Make sure you don't do that. The players have to remain the main characters of the story, regardless. If they want to take the story in a different direction, that's completely fine. Yeah, you'll have to find some way to bring them back, but don't try and bring in some OP wizard or whatever to take them by the hand and lead them exactly where you want. Storyteller alert, buzzer, alarm, woo capable NPCs make your game more fun. If your players are the only people in your story who aren't totally incompetent, your story is going to get boring really fast. Capable NPCs are great texture. They also make the world feel real. Yeah. NPCs that outshine your characters, however, bad news bears. They just remove the drama entirely from the story. Like all rules in art and role-playing is a type of art, they can be broken. Like, it's totally fine if your characters occasionally are supporting this really powerful NPC on their mission, and the NPC is fighting the big bad evil guy, and your players are taking on the evil guy's lieutenants, right? Like, that's a fine thing to have happen on occasion and when that's the point of the story that you're telling. But if that becomes the way you are telling your whole story, it's going to get boring super duper fast. It starts to get a little bit complicated if you're playing a game where there is potential for character death. If you're playing a game where there's a lot of combat, then that's something that hopefully came up in session zero. How does everybody feel about character death? How dangerous should the game be? There are some games where it is very difficult for a character to die. It is, it is a narrative element uh, or it is a, you know, a conscious story storytelling choice like in Blades of the Dark. There are other games where you can roll a character that can accidentally fail a series of rolls and surprise they cast fireball on themselves and they die. Shadowrun! Well, I was going to say D&D <laughs> because that happened to a friend. He played that character. He did that thing. And it might be tempting if you introduce the characters to a situation that maybe they didn't prepare. Maybe you had an encounter that was a little bit unbalanced in a not fun way for you, for them, who knows. Point is, you're facing the possibility of character death. Should an NPC swoop in and save the day, deus ex machina them out, 
Should should you not? Should you let it happen? Should you let people re-roll? That's a communication thing. That's a session zero thing. That's a conversation you all need to have. Maybe you do it once and every time after that, they're on their own. Who knows? But that's a conversation you're going to have to have at the table and you're going to want to, whatever you do, make sure that everybody is satisfied with how you were approaching the narrative in the story. There's no narrative integrity without the agreement of everyone at the table. But once you all agree on what that means, try to stick to it. A rule of thumb that I find works for a lot of my groups really well, and obviously this is a communication thing, I don't just insert this, but this is what we have talked about is that most of my groups are fine with the occasional deus ex machina or severe help from an NPC as long as it comes with a cost. It's a complication to your relationship with that NPC. It's a complication to your characters. It's not just like, oh, look, you were saved and everything is better. Story consequences over. It's like, man, you had to call in this NPC to save your butt. Well, now our story, at least for a little while, is about how do we protect, save, repay this NPC. If you're playing, for instance, fans of Vampire the Masquerade will know, if you now owe a favor to the prince of the city, well, that's a narrative complication. That's what that is. That's called plot, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. My personal fail points that I run into a lot when I'm reading new RPGs, and I, I just like reading new RPGs, is the best game you'll never play, which is a, a game that you really love. You like the mechanics and the setting, and it, it's cool, but it's so niche. You're never going to get enough people together to actually be able to play it. For me, that's Amber. I've got a couple of games that I feel that way about, but most aggressively is Rifts. And I know why I can't get people to play Rifts with me. It's because it's a bad game. Like, <laughs> it's just not a good game, but I love it. And I have so much nostalgia for it that I want to play it anyway. We can and will do a whole episode on that, but I just, it's important to That'll know. That'll be a true therapy session. That really will be the Jared Singer comes to Jesus therapy moment. All right, Jared, one day we can all play the riffs together online. I, I really you. hope so. I really like it's a thing that I need. And so it's, it's important to know that it's not about you having fun. It's about your group having fun, right? I love riffs, but I'm not going to subject my friends to that unless it's like my birthday and they love me, you know, like that. That might be <laughs> when we play riffs. Hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> So the second major category where a game can struggle is in its mechanics, right? We just talked about all the ways that story can fail. There are a lot of ways that mechanics can fail too, or not even necessarily fail, cause you trouble. The first of those like subcategories are, we try to be nice. We try not to be too mean to developers. They're human beings too. But some mechanics are bad. Some mechanics are poorly thought out and should not exist. Like we try to give you the benefit of the doubt, but sometimes it's just bad. There is also always the possibility of a terrible interpretation or you just missed that really important extra two words in the middle of a paragraph oh my yeah, god or that extra happens. one word that came up when the geist got his template geist second edition we spent probably half an hour going back and forth looking for the emphasis in one sentence in a power that was missing one word it was either incredibly powerful or it did nothing. It was missing a comma or not, depending on if you had <laughs> the PDF, which was most recently updated, or the published book, which was a little older. 
And those made them so different in power level. And we're sitting there like, what are we supposed to do? We went to the forums and we got an answer. Which also, you know, God bless is the a pain point. <laughs> That was also a fun discussion. I'm like, no, but there's a comma there. They're like, no, there's not. <laughs> yes, there is. And then I like held up. No, really. I'm looking at the physical book. There's no comma. And then I like took a screenshot of the PDF and there was a comma. It was great. So the bad mechanics that drive me the most crazy, and I know that this is going to be a slightly controversial point here, I cannot stand games that make me keep bookkeeping stuff, bookkeeping information when it doesn't matter at all. I'm okay keeping track of things that are important, but if it's not important, don't make me track it. Go away. Crawl into a hole and leave me alone forever. <laughs> wow. Got opinions. I do have opinions. Like, and I know that there are people on the other end of this debate. God, I hate tracking item weight. I really hate it. And there are some systems where it doesn't bother me. Like if we're playing a survival game in desert and resource management is a huge part of our game and we're tracking how much water before we die, I'm with you there. I am so with you. But if we're playing Shadowrun or Exalted or any of these high settings, I swear to God, if you make me track how much my belt buckle weighs, I'm throwing the book across the I remember playing in, uh, it was the same storyteller and it was the same system, but two different games and they were set in a similar continuity, but different time periods. And one of them was set during the depression. And in that game, the storyteller asked us all to keep track of how much money the party had and it was a much more serious thing tracking how much money we all had in the other game it was not set during the depression and it wasn't a big deal the themes you're going for in your game in the setting for your game you can choose to put emphasis on different things like jared said if you want that granular simulationist feel for your survival and resource management game that's one thing if you don't and by you i, I again mean the table don't think that that's super important you don't have to add it it's fine yeah like where bookie drives me crazy is when it's not necessary when the system tries to put it on you and it's doing nothing for your setting get out of here nobody cares how much my hair gel weighs go away now when you run riffs i'm gonna play someone who keeps meticulous track of his dapper dan hair gel man you're really trying to ruin the one time i get to play riffs that's just personal i don't have to try and ruin that that brings us to the second type of mechanic that drives me crazy, which is mechanics that put players directly in conflict with each other during co-op games. Like there are some games, Amber being a great example, that are intended for your characters to be in conflict with each other. But the vast majority of tabletop games are cooperative and mechanics that put you at odds in that situation are the devil. Let us now do a reading from... <laughs> 
Free League's Alien, the role-playing game, which I must say before I proceed to make fun of it, a lot of people really love. As the company agent, Talents is called Personal Safety. And this wonderful talent allows that if you are attacked or otherwise end up in fatal danger, and if another PC or friendly NPC is within short range, you can make a manipulation roll, and if you succeed, the other player or friendly NPC takes the damage. A note, it it doesn't have to be voluntary on their part. Yes! That's the part that drives me crazy. There are plenty of mechanics and plenty of games that are like, get behind me, right? Yeah, this is the inverse of an interpose. Right. No, it's not get behind me. It's you. Get in front of me. Take this damage. I don't care if you die. I'm the main player. You're literally the bad guy throwing his henchman in front of the good guy's bullet and take your pick of an action movie. I hate it. I hate it. You shouldn't be able to kill another player's character. Without their permission. Not only is that guaranteed to lead to conflict in your group, it's just a bad mechanic. That shouldn't be an option. You should see that in your first playtest and be like, oh, no, delete. Speaking of options, I hate false choices. We talked about them before. And that's when you have some options that are just better than other options. No drawback. Just look at the two like swords that you could take. I'm like, well, but one of them is better. It does more damage. And there's no drawback to it. Why wouldn't I just take that sword? And they really can't give you a reason not to. On the subject of false sources, if something is so good that everyone takes it, it either needs to be retold, removed, or given to everyone. Made standard on the sheet for the template or the subset system or however you're handling it. It's really just a tax at a certain point if everyone has it on their character sheet because you can't really be competitive without it. An example from Exalted 2nd Edition, you got these bonus points that you could spend however you want to build your character. In theory, you could spend however you want. But if you did not spend them buying up a particular thing called Essence, your character was just bad and would never be good again. And so every single player who played the game, you all either agreed, either none of us are upping our Essence at character creation and we are intentionally handicapping our characters and that's fine because we're all in it together, or we're all doing it and those were the only two options. If one person did it and the others didn't, the person who did it was just way better for the entire duration of your game. Which leads us right into something I hate, which is when certain abilities or powers that a character has break the game. You really have to address that immediately. They need a fix, whether that is house ruling them, pretending they don't exist, whatever it is. If you don't deal with them, it will become an arms race between the players and Game Master. This came up once in a game of Shadowrun. We keep bringing up Shadowrun for these various examples. That says something, I guess. I was playing a game and I was the hacker and I realized I could hack into people's cyberware. You know, I could turn off your cool eyes or your spine. I talked to the DM about that and he said, tell you what, we'll have a gentleman's agreement. If you don't start hacking into the NPC cyberware, I won't start hacking into the player cyberware. And I was fine with that. Because if we had gone down that road, A, it would have been awful when you just point someone, your spine doesn't work anymore. And B, it would have led to an arms race where people put digital countermeasures into their cybernetics to protect them from hackers getting into them. And that would just be nonsense. Yes. And 
when referring to simulationist again, we were talking about the Shadowrun setting in a narrative sense that makes complete sense. There should be countermeasures against that in the setting. Also, that's a lot to keep track of on top of all of the other subsystems that you have to keep track of in Shadowrun. That sounds like bookkeeping you don't need. Huzzah! Full circle! I've picked on Cyan enough. I was going to mention Epic Dex, but I've picked on Cyan enough in enough episodes. We can okay. slide. It's not my intention to truly go off the rails. However, comma. I'm ready. I'm not interested in your custom dice. I'm not going to buy them. I don't want to buy them. Don't make me buy them. Use normal dice. We have so many kinds of normal dice. You can put a little tab on the sidebar somewhere that explains how your weird dice map to normal dice. But I have tried so many times to get into games that had custom dice and run into the problem where, well, I can find the book because I can get the book through, say, DriveThruRPG. I can get it print on demand. But DriveThruRPG won't sell me your custom dice and nobody has them in stock anymore. That's nonsense. Don't do it. Use normal dice, please. Looking at you, Fantasy Flight. Wow, just going straight for the throat. I mean, you're not wrong, but still. But that would cut a revenue stream that they're totally maximizing. And like, really though, have custom dice ever added anything to a game? No. Have you ever looked at a game and been like, oh man, the custom dice make me want to play this? No, not one time. No, what I want from my dice is that when I dump out my massive bag of my pretty math rocks, they all are pretty math rocks together. I don't have to worry about finding your weird ones at the bottom of them. I can just use any set of D6s. That's what I want. I have so many and I would happily buy more. Don't make me buy your ridiculous ones. That's all. The one time I'm okay with it is if it's like easily mappable to a normal die and you just want to release like a special edition. Sure. Sure. Right? But that's not really custom dice. That's sure. just, sure. that's, you know, themed dice or whatever. It is easy to use a normal D10 to play uh, Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition. It is easy to use a normal D10. I have seen the custom D10s for it, and I just, I'm, I'm not smart enough to use them. They've got weird symbols on them. Some of the numbers don't have anything on them. It's only because it's specifically trying to map to six and above and 10 is special. And one is special. And one is special. And I'm just not smart enough for your custom dice. I'm just going to use a D10. Sorry. So moving on to the next stage of pain points. We've talked about systems in general. We've talked about story. Let's talk about specific mechanics to introduce logistically difficult role-playing challenges, which is a mouthful. So to summarize that, an interesting role-playing challenge or a difficult one that you come across can be good. It can really define the, the session or the plot, but mechanics that create logistically difficult role-playing just solely make it harder, that's probably not good, and you should probably try to avoid that. It's more bookkeeping bullshit in a different way. It's more just like, why are we making this hard for no reason? This comes up a lot when you're dealing with mysteries. We've talked about this one before, but having systems in place where you just say no to your players and don't give them information to continue the story, it's bad. I've seen it a lot in the past couple of years playing D&D and Pathfinder and more leveled games. They can have a real problem with a progression arc. And what I mean by that is every game to some degree has an 
anticipated power progression for your character. Sometimes that's super linear and defined. For example, in Pathfinder in D&D, where you have levels and every level, okay, you get this, your hit points go up, you get this ability, and they can gear the game for that. For other games, it's more abstract. But that means if you do have that really linear, detailed progression arc, it is super easy to either fall behind it, or if you manage to get ahead, you're going to create a problem for the game. If you figured out the way to maximize your character's, I don't know, ability to damage with a sling, and you like took all the feats and did all the hacks, and like I hit them with my sling stone, they take 37d6 points of damage. You really can't participate in combat anymore because you're going to skew it so much, either it's not gonna work as a challenge, or the GM has to adjust it for you and everyone else gets murdered. And similarly, if you don't progress at the rate the game expects you to. If you make some choices, like specifically in D&D, like you play a wizard and you decide, no, I want to be better at sword fighting at this level. I'm going to increase my strength. That's a cool idea. And I can really see a cool character coming out of that. But if you're not increasing your spellcasting capability or your DCs, if you're not investing in that, the game might expect you to be doing that. And that might mean that you can't keep up with the challenges it wants to throw at you anymore. Both of those problems can be solved by communication. Like a lot of times D&D and Starfinder or Pathfinder or whatever it is, get in trouble when you have one person who's power gaming and the others who aren't. Not that there's anything wrong with power gaming, but if we're all trying to min-max how much damage we deal, then we all need to be doing it. If you have one player who's doing it and the others aren't, it's a real problem. If you're like, I'm going to be a samurai and I'm going to get buffed in these ways by the characters and I'm going to take 800 attacks in a turn, which is only mild hyperbole, that's a problem. And the same thing, if everybody decides, if the whole party decides, we're going to take a level off from enhancing what we should be doing to take this level to make our characters more interesting, then that's fine. Then that's okay. But if you're the only character who does it, you're going to have a bad time. Another problem is sometimes in games that are more freeform, you have players that screw themselves. Cough, Ben, cough, cough. <laughs> by just yeah. not spending their experience. At one point, Ben came to me and was like, I don't know why my character is so weak. And I was like, well, let's figure that out. And it turns out he had 90 unspent experience points. <laughs> In a game where you get one experience point, what, every four sessions? Would you say on average? No, more like one, like every, like one experience point, like every two sessions, usually. Yeah. yeah. And you just have like 90 unspent XP. We had an entire other character on his sheet. Yeah. That's what yeah. he had. Meanwhile, the rest of us are running around scraping one beat after another to get XP, and Ben's just wandering around. And and then Ben spent all his XP, and then he sent me a message was like, "Wow, my character feels really good." And I'm like, "No shit, Sherlock, welcome to the party." What do you? Yeah. Congratulations, welcome when you back place to that the go kart engine with a Hemi. What do you think's gonna happen? Like, come right. on, buddy. And, and I know that I'm making fun of Ben and Ben's laughing at himself here and that's good. But like, to, to be real, this should have been a communication yes. moment where I spoke to Ben long before we got there. And that was a communication failure. You know, as soon as I noticed like, Ben, hey, you haven't bought anything in a while. Do you want to spend those 10 XP? And I should have asked him rather than let it get to 90. I mean, we all learned a bit from there, but yeah, it helps. Now, you got to spend now, that XP. Now I send Ben an email every month being like, so yep. what do you want to buy on your character? <laughs> 
And, and I'm like, oh yeah, experience. Yeah. You, you should just automate that, set up a macro, so the first of every month it just sends that. I really <laughs> should. That would save me some time. <laughs> Actually, Jared, you already mentioned it. It is really easy to have one character run away with a mechanic or competency or specialization. And I think that happens a lot in more abstract games or games where like you have more point by where the game actually expects you to generalize your character and be a somewhat well-rounded person, which ironically to call back Shadowrun again, Shadowrun both expects you to super specialize, but also punishes you for not being well-rounded. If you make a character the way they expect you to in the book, you can't operate in society. You can't make the skill checks to look something up on wikipedia if you follow the rules as well for most characters it's that extra level of stress testing honestly on the developer side when they present npcs in the back of the book and there are games i know they've done this and they give you like this is a sample low powered character a sample starting character and you read exactly what's on that sample quote-unquote starting character sheet and you know you cannot actually build what they've presented with the starting mechanics as written. When you look at those quote-unquote starting characters in the back of the book and you say, wow, that's got at least 10 or 15 more XP or equivalent than what an actual starting character looks like, they've rounded out these examples and you're kind of left adrift as a result. So a lot of this, once again, can be solved by talking to your table. Do you want to generalize or do you want to be weird, hyper-specific, non-functional wackadoos? What matters here is that the whole table is doing the same thing. If you've got three generalists and then the world's best swordsman, the world's best swordsman can't talk to people at dinner or order a coffee, but he kills people real good. And like the problem there is now you can't have successful combat because only the world's best swordsman can fight and everyone else will get murdered by his opponents. You're all ready to take on that challenge. That's one thing, but that's why this section is called what it is. Logistical difficulty in role-playing. If you find it is a narrative difficulty that presents interest, that's one thing. If it is a logistical difficulty that presents headache, that's a different thing. Yeah, always know your table's preferences. If you want to go role-play heavy and yeah, the swordsman is really good with a sword, but that doesn't come out a whole lot mechanically. Like you aren't spending an entire session watching him carve up enemies while everyone else you know, goes off for a snack break. But instead, it's just kind of said, hey, he or she does that thing. And then now let's go see what this other person is good at. That's that's fine. That can work. Just, of course, as we're going to say, probably at least 20 more times. Um, just talk to your table and see what type of game everyone wants to play. The next big category of mechanics that can totally screw up your game are dogs that caught the car mechanics. Your dog loves to chase the car, but then it catches the car and doesn't know what the hell to do now. That's a problem. I see it a lot where you get abilities that make you very narratively important in some aspect, but by doing that, they change the entire nature of the game. You know, I get this ability, well, now I'm the head of an organization, a cult, a company, a tavern, whatever, but it gives me a bunch of social influence. That's great. That's a cool character concept. But if you weren't set up for that before in the game, you are now playing a very different game if you are now the center of attention in that way. Powers that might have 
say, a day-to-day logistical upkeep that's sort of written in and which need to be massaged or house-ruled in order to fit into your game, they can accidentally create some additional unfun upkeep. The example that comes to mind most readily, the second edition of Werewolf the Forsaken, which if you're not familiar, werewolves. The point is a character that is... (laughs) Very simple. Very simple. I like how you laid out that that was nice too long didn't read. A character that is sort of at middling to higher relative power level in the game. There is a mechanic. It's called the Sacred Hunt. Uh, It becomes an actual spiritual obligation to your character and they start taking checks to a stat called Harmony, which represents their relative balance between their werewolf self and their human self, essentially. Essentially like the generative. Well, sort of. Sort of. How well balanced are you between the poles of your nature? And if you start failing those checks, sliding one way or another, it will dramatically change how your character goes. But more directly to the point, if you are not participating in the Sisker Da, the sacred hunt, then you're going to start making those checks at an increasing frequency the more, the higher your character's relative power level. For fans of the Chronicles of Darkness games, Essence, the stat that represents how werewolfy your werewolf is. If you're playing a bunch of werewolves in a pack together, that's relatively easy to handle. If you decide you wanted to play a blended template game, and now your werewolf has this spiritual obligation that they need to meet, that could be something that you can easily accomplish just in the course of normal plot chasing, or maybe just the timing makes it more difficult to work in when that character is going to meet that need without anybody meaning to have it interrupt narrative. That's why we're calling it dog that caught the car. It's something that looks on the face of it like it won't be a problem until you get in and you realize, oh, this is a little bit more complicated to actually implement than I realized. Any blended game in Chronicles of Darkness is this idea writ large. Anytime you have a tapestry game, you're going to deal with dog that caught the car mechanics through the roof because, and I think that this is in general a good idea. Onyx path has put in mechanics that really force you to explore the nature of each template. As a changeling, you have to go eat emotions from people to stay normal and use your powers. Werewolves have to hunt Mages have to deal with the esoteric. Geists have to eat ghost goo. You have to do all of these things. And if your party is mono splat, then that just becomes a part of your game. But if you're doing a tapestry game, you either have to streamline it, ignore it, or accept that like one out of every three sessions is just going to be, okay, everybody, here's all of our bookkeeping mechanics. And when you have one of those, it's a lot of fun and everybody can engage in it when you have five six seven of those it's awful streamlined similarly as we expand on that idea you got to be really careful about your mechanics that only one player can interact with you can't keep just one player in the spotlight 
one time, and I swear to God, I'm not picking on Shadowrun. I just keep coming up with these examples. You're picking on Shadowrun a little bit. Mm. Not uh, in a mean-spirited way. Th- these are just examples, right? I was in a Shadowrun game, and the hacker realized that we were hunting someone, and they had been by a stuffer shack, which is the in-universe 7-Eleven, right? They had been by there. So she... I feel like it's more like a Wawa. I feel like it's got a gas station component, but whatever. She wants to try and get into the security system of this 7-Eleven or Wawa and get that clip of the video. It took her 20 real life minutes to do that. And I want to be clear, she wasn't bad at hacking. She didn't roll particularly poorly, but the mechanics were just so punishing and slanted away from the character that it just took forever wearing it down. And of course, while she's doing that, we're like getting a soda, we're having a snack, we're on our phones, because we can't help her. There was the joke that she, you know, she finally pulls out of the matrix and she's like covered in sweat and we're like standing there with like a, a slurpee and a Twinkie, how'd it go? <laughs> Let's talk about a different situation in which this can happen. Superhero games. Superhero games can run into these sorts of problems. You, we've, you know, there is the classic, tell me again how Batman and Superman are both on the same team. Tell me again how that works. There is also, if anyone is familiar with Mutants and Masterminds, in a lot of superhero games, when you are building your power sets, you might have everybody have a great idea of their special power set they want to have and they're going to put all their powers together to you know work together to do whatever it is superheroes do every single time i have played in a superhero game and this is not a negative thing at all but there have always been people who looked at one power set and said wow i want to have this this is a little stealthier this is a little more subtle this gives me this other kind of way to interact with the plot that isn't super strength or mind powers or anything like that but we're not always just talking about games that have a bunch of different unique subsystems or games where you can cross templates in interesting ways. Sometimes we're talking about games where you have so many options and everybody with best intentions can go and build their cool idea. But now you as a storyteller, you as a player interacting with your fellow players all have to keep track of all of the different weird and unique ways that you individually can interact with a plot. And that's just a lot of cats. It's not a bad thing. It's just a lot of cats. In a a sort of related vein, sometimes you have mechanics that don't interact well with the setting. And I swear I'm going to make Ludo narrative a thing. There's going to be merchandise with that on it one day. But yeah, you could have mechanics that seem fine. No, 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 no. Hold up, hold up. Don't brush past that. Pull out your personal soapbox. Let's hear about the Ludo narrative. This is is your (laughs) chance. This is your moment. All right, so Ludo Narrative, in case you missed it in the previous episodes where I talked about it, ranted about it. Ludo Narrative is how the mechanics and the story interact. If you have a a cool mechanic that explains how wizards use magic in your world. So Shadowrun, here's a good example. Uh, In Shadowrun, uh, you're not... (laughs) Yeah, in Shadowrun, you're not limited to how many spells per day you can cast. But every time you cast a spell, you have to make a check to avoid getting hurt by it as you channel that energy. That's a great Ludo narrative. That's a good mechanic and system and and story interaction. Wizards burn themselves out doing this, but if they really want to go for it, they can overcast and, you know, I blow up the tank. My brain melts out my ears, but I blow up the tank. Versus a more distant related mechanic like in D&D, where 
Okay, I prepared three spells today. That's what I can cast. Why? That's how many spells a wizard of my level can prepare. That, that's just how the system works. That's a lot harder to make sense out of the setting with, right? That's a lot harder to explain in-universe. The other mechanic I think about a lot that really stands out this way in D&D, warlocks are kind of presented as a, like, taboo thing that people are wary of. Like, they're supposed to be witches, right? Especially if you're, like, a Great Old Ones warlock or an Infernal warlock. What? Making a deal with an unknowable beast is bad? Question mark? Where'd you get your powers? Oh, there's this thing that lives under the water and I sacrifice people to it. I don't know its name. When I think about its name, I, I start to claw up my eyes. So I try not I'm to I'm going to stop you right there. <laughs> what? Why are we talking to you? Oh my God. <laughs> That's a thing. But also, if they're supposed to be that like taboo and weird and shunned, they're the only class that has some certain spells. So in universe, if someone sees you casting some of those spells, that should be a real big red flag. Like, oh, he cast that? He made a deal with the devil and sold his soul. That's sort of a problem. <laughs> no. And sometimes they just don't work, the mechanics. They just, sometimes you're just going to have to, as Ryan was talking about earlier, have a gentleman's agreement or just, you know, excise them. A superhero game ex example. There are a lot of superheroes that, you know, you have the Venom thing where like you're a guy and then Venom climbs all over you and you're a different guy with different powers. I love that in comic books. And so the first time I played Mutants and Masterminds, I was like, yeah, I'm going to go for the whole symbiote thing. I'm going to have no actual powers, but I'm going to be a super researchy smart guy just myself. And then the thing is going to come over me and I'm going to be a combat monster. Little did I realize that this meant I actually got to spend as many points as everyone else did twice. Oh. And so I was just actually two characters and twice as powerful as the rest of the party. And I was like, wait, how did the game let me do this? I didn't even meet. And I realized that I had created an utterly broken character <laughs> completely by accident because the game told me it was okay. Their solution in later editions was to make that power. You don't take that power when when you combine to make something stronger you build the stronger thing and take that power to break apart into smaller things. You would play Voltron and take that power and then you turn into individual robots. And that might work, but I remember that first time sure. like, we were all new to the setting. Like none of us had played in Mutants and Masterminds before and I was like, oh, I'm just way better than every character on pure accident. Mutants and Masterminds is, I think, notorious for the, you build your character and then you walk away and you come back a couple days later and you build your character again and you find that, wow, I can save 20 points. And then you walk away and you come back and you build your character again and you save yourself another packet of points. And suddenly you have the same character, but by choosing slightly different mechanical options you have now accomplished the thing you wanted to do far more efficiently and you are going to be better at it than someone who didn't walk away a couple of times a la the defenders tv show daredevil versus danny daredevil was better at everything that danny wanted to do iron fist wanted to do and he just spent his points better that's it. Mechanically, <laughs> if we're talking about that in a Mutants and Mastermind situation, the player of Daredevil spent their points better and got more for fewer drawbacks than the player of Iron Fist. That is what we are describing here.
the worst case of this I've ever seen was in Heroes Unlimited, which is the superhero chunk that builds into rifts. Most superhero games make very generic powers, like Blast. It's a ranged damage attack. Describe it however you want. It doesn't matter, right? That's just narrative. Not talk. Heroes Unlimited. That's not how Rifts rolls. Nope. Not Heroes Unlimited. Heroes Unlimited, they sat down and they went through every comic, every movie, every television show, every video game, and they wrote up each individual power they saw. So Fire Blast was different from Ice Blast, which was different from Telekinesis, which was different from Laser Eyes. They wrote out different mechanic rules for 27 different blast powers, all of which were mechanically unique and some were far better than others for, I guess, reasons. This is the book that has been shown to stop a bullet, right? Yes. No. Yes. That is no. Hero System. Ah, oh, my mistake. Different. Heroes Unlimited in one edition interchanges the words weight and mass a lot in one power. Oh. It also wrote up individual powers for turning into different things. Not like, oh, you have shape-shifting. Like, okay, you can turn into metal, like Colossus. Or you can turn into glass. Or you can turn into a ragdoll version of yourself. My favorite, you can turn into a non-sentient gas cloud. How do you choose to turn back? How do you choose to turn back? <laughs> <laughs> Rule number one, you don't shape-shift your brain. <laughs> It was an experience playing that game. <laughs> so the last major pain point isn't the rules of your game. It isn't the setting of the game. It is the culture that surrounds the game. This could be an entire podcast by itself. This is several podcasts, many long Twitter threads, many blog posts, at least one book that I am aware of just talking about gaming culture collectively, culture of individual groups, the science behind how people enjoy their hobbies together and consistent things that social scientists have found about hobbies. We're not going to get into all that detail. We can't. We just can't. We're, we're four people just talking. You know, there, there's lots of scandals and drama that happens in any group that is passionate about anything. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about culture. We are not talking about Gamergate. We are not talking about right-wing nutjobs. I mean, I'm happy to talk to you all about those things at a future time, but that's not what we're talking about here. The big thing, ultimately is you're there, for the most part, to have fun with your friends. If someone's uncomfortable or unhappy, they're just not going to be able to do that. And what we're doing here today is trying to talk you about through some ways to help you through that. Or it's about telling a good story or maxing your character's level or min-maxing, whatever. But just make sure that you're owning what your culture for your role-playing group is is and that you're very upfront and very explicit about what you're here for so that everyone can be on the same page when people's expectations don't line up that's where gaming groups get into trouble and where things explode one of the reasons we're talking about this is because it's become a topic on social media recently gaming has become more mainstream in the last couple of years and it's growing really fast huzzah Huzzah! More people to game with. But because of that, there's been a lot of shifting and re-examining of gaming itself 
and the culture that surrounds it. And if you go into social media, especially I've seen it on Twitter, there are a lot of independent developers and individual gamers who are talking about that, about their experiences at tables, about what they liked, what they didn't like. And it's leading to some really innovative choices in game design and how we talk about things. And I'm sure a lot of that also happens at the larger companies, but we don't get to see it happen. And because it's larger, it it tends to happen slower there. But if you're interested in this, go out there and just do hashtag RPG. And sooner or later, you will run into people talking about this. I guarantee it. Some of these tools that we have that people are playing around with, that smaller developers especially have been using and integrating, but most tables already have or should have already in place. Um, Ideas of things like X cards, lines and veils, yellow lights and red lights. We've talked about that. You can refer back to that podcast episode for more information on those specific things and how they work, but they will really help you define what things you can and can't talk about in a good way. I think I also want to follow up this with the things that you can and can't talk about, the things you are and are not comfortable talking about. You can find other people who want to play the same types of games that you want to play. In part because of what Ryan was saying, the these conversations, this sort of hobby-wide soul-searching is happening all over the internet. You don't have to just satisfy yourself with the three people who also live nearby and are willing to roll dice with you. There's a whole world out there. You can choose who you take advice from, who you take input from, and sort of build your own network that's possible now give yourself the gift of separating the people from the games that they play and what i mean by that is like i'm not excusing people being awful to other humans in game like that's not a thing that good people do what i'm saying is that some of my dearest friends who i love spending time with and even love gaming with sometimes want to play games that i want nothing to do with i got approached recently about some folks who wanted to do a very bloody that's one of the things they wanted gore to be the focus and their pitch to me is like we want to do kill bill the rpg we want cinematic songs playing in the background blood flying everywhere and we want it to be as gory as possible metal and these these are people i enjoy spending time with and i was I mean, like that sounds like a really cool concept i yeah i was like i want nothing to do with that game i love spending time with you all but that is not where i go to for my fantasy stuff they're like but wouldn't it be cool to like slide across the room on pools of blood and i was like no i don't want to do that (laughs) i want to do a different thing in my game what i'm saying is give yourself the gift of saying no to that but not having it change how you feel about those people they're still my friends i still game with them occasionally i just don't play that game i don't want to play that game that's not for me every time we've talked about the importance of communication previously on this podcast and we've mentioned like maybe you get into a point where you find out that your players want to do it you don't somebody else at the table doesn't want to do it you do it is okay to walk away from that game it is okay if you want to resolve it if you all want to come to some other agreement come to some other arrangement if you want to all work together to make sure that you can make something else work absolutely go for it do that but if you go through these processes and you find out i don't think i'm gonna be happy here ultimately it is okay to walk away from that game 
and you should. Last thing that I want to say, and it is related to the game I just told you guys I opted out of, the one thing that they told me they were going to do that I think would be neat for one of our games sometimes is everyone had to come to each session with one song. And every time they got into a fight, they were going to randomly select a player and their song was going to be the background music of the fight. And you needed your fight moves and everything and choreography and whatever to reflect the mood of that song that would have to be an afternoon session not an after work session yeah agreed but i mean i was just like okay that's a cool idea if you guys weren't focusing on hyper violence i would be excited about the hyper violence is not how i want to spend my entertainment if i want hyper violence i'll just watch cnn that would be a fun thing to incorporate into a they came from game like they came from Hmm. beneath the sea or they came from beyond the grave because you've already got that element of the of the sort of movie set kind of trappings you could do something like that that'd be really cool and the most important thing jared is is that you forgave yourself for saying no (laughs) no but like Really, though, like I had that moment of like, oh, man, am I really saying no to hanging out with some of my favorite people? And then I was like, yes, I am because they're doing a thing I don't want to do. And you can still hang out with them in other contexts. Yes, we can still be friends. I just I don't like I don't want to pretend I'm in a Kurosawa film. That's not just just not not how you like to play. Well, I'm Ryan, the argumentative rules guy. I'm Ben, the lethargic player. I'm Helen, the tragic backstory storyteller. And I'm Jared, the mislabeled index game master. Together, we are the Starting Equipment Podcast. Please join us next week as we start our review of the Warhammer 40k game, Wrath and Glory. That will not be about communication. Well, (laughs) there will be some communicating. (laughs) Womp, womp, womp. (laughs)